Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Runnymede Radio. I'm Brian Bird, a communications associate for the Runnymede Society. In this episode, we hear from Professor Kerry Frock, an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of New Brunswick. Interviewed by Mark Mancini, the national director of the Runnymede Society, Professor Frock discusses the intersection of feminism and originalism in the context of Canadian constitutional law and interpretation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Runnymede Radio. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to Runnymede Radio, our first episode of 2020. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. We, uh, we're here today with uh, Professor Carrie Frock from the University of New Brunswick's Faculty of Law. Uh, welcome, Professor Frock. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thanks for having me. We're, t- we're very excited to, to host you today because we're going to be talking about a topic that I think uh, deserves way more recognition and uh, more attention, and that's the general theme of feminist originalism, which might appear to some to be an oxymoron, but we're going to hope to crack that case today. So maybe just to start, um, I'll ask you, maybe you can explain just the main strands of originalism that exist uh, in the literature in the United States and in Canada, just to set the stage for uh, the discussion to follow. Sure. So when most Canadians and and probably most Americans too think of originalism, they think of kind of old school um, Scalia originalism, original intent, what was in the minds of the framers at the time that a constitution was drafted and ratified. Um, But really that's an antiquated um, uh, perspective on originalism. And in the 1970s and following, originalism actually got quite a bit more complex. And um, what's called new originalism uh, kind of took flight. So um, Lawrence Solom, who's one of the the central uh, scholars of originalism in the United States, says that although originalism is kind of more like a family rather than a a unifying theory, there's some common family traits amongst um, originalists um, in uh, contemporary uh, scholarship today. So he says that a couple of the things that originalists Um, believe in no matter what their stripe is what he calls the the fixation thesis and the constraint thesis. So the fixation thesis essentially says that whatever you think of as the original meaning um, is fixed at the time of framing and ratification. So in Canadian terms, we go back to 1981 and 82. I spend a lot of my time living in those two years. Um, And the constraint thesis, um, some, you know, like I say, there's lots of varying degrees of that, but essentially that in some way and in some respect, um, the courts um, are guided or constrained by that original meaning. Now, there's a bunch of differences amongst um, originalists, um, but most of them agree on those two things. Um, For example, most originalists will make a distinction between what's called interpretation versus uh, construction. So interpretation, you just look at the meaning of terms, the semantic meaning 
Um, what the, did equality mean back in 1981, 82, for example? And let's try to define that term. But we know that constitutions are meant to last a long time. So just defining um, the meaning of those terms will probably not take us very far in the majority of cases. And therefore, we enter the realm of construction, which is um, the building blocks of constitutional doctrine. So section one and looking at um, what demonstrably justified meant back in 1981 would be interpretation but the Oaks test would be construction. So to what extent and how big that interpretive zone is versus the construction zone is things that nerds like me like to fight about. Um, another thing that people like to fight about is to what extent um, are we talking about original meaning, which is the thing that's fixed and constrains versus original intended application, which means, um, for example, in our case, how um, Minister of Justice Jean Chrétien thought that Section 7 might be interpreted, how they thought it might be applied to um, cases in the future. And most originalists don't regard original intended application as binding because we're dealing with politicians. They might, might not necessarily have, um, you know, the legal background to be able to interpret that at, or decide that accurately. And as people like Jack Balkin say, we're looking at the text that was entrenched and not the hopes and fears and um, anticipated results of the framers. They didn't have crystal balls. So um, we, we don't take original intended application as authoritative, although it can give us some hints on what the original meaning is. And of course, there's the most uh, fundamental uh, difference between originalists that look at original intent. Um, most of those, they're kind of a dying breed. That was an old version of originalism. Um, most originalists today look at what original meaning is, which again is not uh, about what's in the head of the framers and ratifiers, but what the semantic meaning of the terms were. Because obviously when people are writing out text, they want to make sure that their um, words are understood. So they're using common meanings as the tools of the trade. And that's what we're looking at uncovering. So that gives you a, a little bit of an overview on what originalism is all about. That's very helpful because I think some of those nuances are, are lost, at least in the Canadian context. And to that end, I guess the next question I have for you is, would it be fair to say that originalism has a bad reputation in Canada? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, if you look at cases like BC Motor Vehicles and the idea that if we look at um, the history and of uh, the framing and ratification of a constitution and regard that as um, somehow authoritative, um, that's going to lead us into the realm of frozen rights. And it'll be terrible because the Constitution will become more and more obsolete over time. It won't be able to deal with contemporary problems. 
And there's also what they call the indeterminacy problem. How do you figure out um, common um, uh, intentions or understandings amongst um, uh, a body like Parliament that has a bunch of people that might not necessarily all intend or believe the same thing? So in Canada, we're probably about 40 years behind the times in terms of courts understanding what originalism is. They're stuck in thinking it's all about original intent and thinking about um, what James Madison or in our case, Pierre Trudeau or Jean Chrétien thought in 1982 or 81. But that's not really um, what most originalists today, either in Canada or the United States, are really talking about. Interesting. So so to contrast that, uh, what you just said with what Canada does when it comes to constitutional interpretation, is there any overlap? So in other words, what is Canada's leading interpretive theory? And does it find any, does originalism find any support in that leading interpretive theory? Well, um, to be at, you know, most generous, um, I would say that um, there's overlap between um, some of what originalism does and what we call our purposive interpretation of the charter, where you're supposed to look at, you know, the, the, the linguistic, philosophic and historical context um, behind um, various um, terms that or, or concepts that are used in the charter and what originalism does, because in the purposive interpretation of constitutional terms, you're supposed to take into account history. Now, the Supreme Court has interpreted that to mean, well, we can look at what Aristotle said about equality, but not necessarily what um, the um, National Action Committee on the Status of Women thought about equality, which obviously I think is wrong. Um, so, um, but, you know, there is a bit of respect for history history baked right into the purposive approach. And for example, that's why I call my own particular version of originalism, new purposivism, um, to try to, um, uh, you know, uh, get people on board with it. Um, I don't think it's all that different. It just um, uh, standardizes and provides uh, a particular role for history rather than it being completely up to the discretion of judges. Because, of course, in Canada and in charter cases and division of powers cases, there's tons and tons of references to the framers and what the framers thought and what the framers um, were meant to do with various provisions. It's just that there's no regularity to it. The court can either take history or leave it or sometimes do their own historical analysis, which ends up not being completely accurate, which um, I have a, a forthcoming um, article about the Como case with my colleague Michael Marin, where we take the Supreme Court to task for not doing uh, a rigorous enough historical analysis in that case. Um, and I think some of the problems are related to living tree um, constitutionalism, which essentially is, of course, the idea that constitutional meaning can grow and evolve as society um, changes and evolves. Um, you know, that comes from the person's case. The Privy Council is pretty clear that the tree has to have roots. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> but... Um, the roots part of the living tree has been relatively ignored 
And what it's come to mean is wide open discretion for judges to um, disregard the original meaning of terms, to um, use the constitutional text as an empty vessel to pour in its own um, idea of what a constitution should contain, or um, in the case of the provision that I look at, Section 28, which is about equal rights, um, for the last 30 years, they've pretty much just decided to ignore it completely. Well, let's so let's jump into that, uh, into the Section 28 issue. Uh, and as a prelude to that, I just want to ask, do you think originalism uh, or maybe your school of new propulsivism has something to say about women's rights or is it or is or is that foreclosed by, I think, originalism's popularly understood conservative orientation? So in other words, is there such a thing in your view as feminist originalism? Well, I like to say I'm the world's only feminist originalist, but, um, you know, and I, I welcome more of, you know, uh, colleagues that want to uh, take on that label. But so far, I think I'm the only one. Um, and, you know, and I understand that there's way more concerns in um, places like the United States or Australia, the United States in particular, because they have a constitution that's so old. Um, and at the time that it was framed and ratified, um, you know, women, um, black Americans um, didn't, weren't seen as complete persons, weren't seen as fully human. Um, so what do you do with a constitution like that? But in our case in Canada, women were extremely active in um, uh, having input into the constitutional text. They drafted Section 28. And I think that what they have to say about um, uh, the the meaning of the charter ought to be given proper respect. So I, I do think in the Canadian context that there's room for a feminist originalism. Much depends, however, on a, a principled uh, originalist approach rather than a court cherry picking history um, as I said, there has to be um, room, and I think there is room within new originalism for adaptation and change of the Charter and the Constitution. Um, but we have to start from first principles, which is the original meaning of the, of the, of the text. So on that note, turning to Section 28 specifically, uh, and you alluded to this a bit earlier, uh, where what's the commonly understood meaning of this provision and how does that commonly understood meaning differ from perhaps what the original meaning in your view of section 28 means yeah and section 28 has really had um, a bit of a turbulent history um, courts took it and ran with it um, immediately in the aftermath of the entrenchment of the charter um, to say that there should absolutely be no distinction between males and females, women and men in any legislation. So taken to mean um, absolutely no distinctions. That was completely contrary to um, what the women who drafted Section 28 um, meant by its equal rights guarantee. 
but that's how it was used. It was almost equality with a vengeance. So let's go after um, certain protections for women. For example, um, there was a, a provision that, that gave a, a small amount of extra money to single mothers in Nova Scotia. There was a whole whack of uh, gendered provisions in the criminal code dealing with sexual exploitation of girls um, that um, by men that was struck down. Um, so that was the uh, meaning in the immediate aftermath of the charter. After that, um, that um, meaning kind of uh, went into disuse um, with cases at the Supreme Court like Hess, where uh, the court really tried to defang Section 28 because it was almost seen as a threat to women's equality. So it was disregarded as merely interpretive. Um, Peter Hogg said it really has little work to do. It's uh, really there to um, add emphasis to Section 15 to say, okay, well, gen uh, equality is guaranteed. And Section 28 says, and we really mean it when it comes to sex equality. Um, but I think that is entirely um, contrary to the, the text and original meaning and how uh, Section 28 ought to be construed. Okay, so if Section 28 has this sort of uh, more substantive meaning, how does it relate to other provisions in the Constitution? So, for example, I think one area that we could talk about is Section 33, the Notwithstanding Clause, or Section 1. So how does Section 28 relate to those particular provisions? Right. So the notwithstanding clause is the big, hot, sexy topic. I say <laughs> that, you know, my, my husband is uh, a horror film expert, so he's popular once a year. I'm popular about once every 10 years, it seems. <laughs> um, so, but, um, so Section 28, um, its text is pretty simple. Notwithstanding anything in its charters, the rights and freedoms uh, referred to therein are guaranteed equally to male and female persons. But um, within that, um, it contains multitudes, right? So within that, um, we see um, that there's a rule, um, notwithstanding anything in this charter. And when you look at that phrase, it's a powerful phrase. It was put there intentionally. And one of the reasons um, and one of its the, the, the significance of that phrase is that uh, Section 28, um, when the Notwithstanding Clause was developed um, during the Kitchen Accord, so very late in the constitutional process in November 1981, um, the, it was proposed that Section 28 read, Notwithstanding Anything Except Section 33, and Section 33 itself was um, amended to include Section 28, or at least um, that was the draft proposed by um, government drafters and provincial representatives. And women lobbied extensively to um, remo remove um, the uh, impact of Section th uh, 33 from 28. Um, they did so on the basis that they didn't want governments to be able to um, use Section 33 to bypass the Charter and to allow sex discrimination to continue. Um, and they didn't want um, Section 33 to be used so that rights could be given unequally to men and women in other contexts as well. 
Um, so that is one part of the rule. The more controversial part, it seems, although it wasn't controversial to anyone at the time, is that notwithstanding anything includes section one. That's the plain meaning. That's what everyone that I've talked to in my research has said was um, what it was meant to do was to also bypass uh, section one when it comes to equal rights. So even um, talking to government drafters, they are very clear that um, they understood that section 28 meant that it was not subject to section one. Um, whether you think that's good, bad, or indifferent is kind of beyond, beside the point for me. Whether courts think that's good, bad, or indifferent is beside the point. That's the text, and that's what it means. Um, so there's that part of it. Um, in terms of uh, the other aspects of Section 28, it was really meant for the entire charter to be um, interpreted through a gender equality lens. So people say, oh, Section 28, merely interpretive. Um, it does have an interpretive function. It's to um, ensure that um, when uh, courts are developing uh, constitutional doctrine about Section um, 2B, freedom of expression or freedom of religion, it's meant so that the doctrine doesn't have adverse effects so that women have unequal access to those rights. So that's one element. Um, there's other elements that really haven't gotten a lot of play um, about Section 28 as a substantive right, which I can talk to you a little bit about too, but um, I think that'll do it for now. Great. So uh, let's try to apply a little bit of this because, as you know, uh, as you, you know more, more than anyone, uh, Bill 21 in Quebec has raised the prospect of Section 28 being used as a substantive, uh, a subst having substantive content. So can you tell, talk a little bit about what Section your understanding of Section 28 means for the contemporary debates over the constitutionality of Bill 21 in the province of Quebec? Right. So there's, there's a couple of aspects where I think Section 28 um, is helpful to the claimants in that case. Um, first of all, um, when it comes to um, sex discrimination, and it's my perspective that if you look at the background of Bill 21 and its predecessor that um, dealt with uh, face coverings, it's very clear that both in purpose and effect, um, its purpose was to um, f uh, target um, women that wear the hijab and the niqab. Um, so when you're dealing with legislation that is purposely uh, discriminatory towards a particular group of women, it doesn't have to be all women. If it's a particular group of women, that's sex discrimination. And as I talked about before, um, sex discrimination, the function of Section 28 is to protect um, sex discrimination from being upheld using the notwithstanding clause. Um, also, where it comes into um, significance is when you look at Section 2A rights, freedom of religion. So we have the notwithstanding clause being used so that um, Section 2A uh, claim can't be made. Now, because the legislation in purpose and effect is really meant to function to um, hinder women who wear the niqab and the hijab, 
from getting public services, from being employed by, by government, and even as uh, childcare workers or teachers. Um, this means that women's uh, Section 2A Freedom of Religion Rights are being violated disproportionately um, to men's with no recourse. So the ultimate result is that women have unequal access to freedom of religion when it comes to men in that society. Very interesting. Uh, well, it, that's actually uh, our final question for today. Uh, but Professor Frock, do you have anything to add to Section 28 originalism uh, and its place in, in Canadian constitutional law? Well, I really think that um, it's time for Section 28 to be treated seriously. It's a, it's a provision of our Constitution. It's in the text. Um, for example, you know, we, we know that in the division of powers, it's for legislators to legislate and for courts to interpret. Courts have no business um, ignoring um, written provisions of the charter. Um, if they um, believe that they are unwise, that's not for them to say. They are to interpret, they are to give meaning, and they are to give effect to constitutional terms. There's um, uh, no ability for a court to read down or read out anything in the constitution. So they must give effect to that rule in Section 28, which says notwithstanding anything. And that means um, blocking sex discrimination and unequal rights from the operation of Section 33 and Section 1. Um, and so um, we have to think about the blood, sweat and tears of ordinary Canadians um, who are um, taking time out from their workaday lives in 1981-82. Women were being unpaid to do all of this work um, we just had uh, a, a decision from the Supreme Court on pay equity. Well, this was pay inequity because um, all the politicians were being paid and none of the women were um, that were working on Section 28. We have to, to give significance to that amazing event, which probably the likes of which has not been seen in terms of citizen participation in the drafting of a, of a domestic constitution. So I would leave it at that. Well said. Well, uh, again, Professor Farrakh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of your day today to speak to us about this topic. Uh, I suspect it's a topic that's going to get far more attention in the coming years. And uh, so we thank you for your work on, the, on that topic and for taking the time today to speak to us. Totally my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Runnymede Radio. To learn more about the Runnymede Society, visit our website at runnymedesociety.ca or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.